Hey, Al. I've been thinking about those Marvel UK characters we talked about a few episodes back. That line sure seems like it had some pretty out-there stuff in it. It was completely wild. Apart from Motormouth and Killpower, there was Dark Angel, who is this techno-magical hero who stored her power armor in an interdimensional void in her stomach. There was Deathwreck, who was a cyborg killing machine with a body made of junk and the brain of a wino. And, of course, there was Digitech. Digitech? I'm guessing he was digital and technological. Uh, so some kind of computer-themed hero? Exactly. He was a scientist named Jonathan Bryant who accidentally bonds with a techno-MacGuffin called Proto-Silicon and gains the power to generate high-tech weaponry from his arms, travel via telephone lines, and talk to computers. A technological hero who travels via telephone lines? The early 90s were amazing. They really were, yeah. Of course, it wasn't all power-ups and extra lives for Digitech. He was nearly killed by a team of three evil protosilicon mercenaries called the Basilicons, who had all of his powers and more. Luckily, Digitech was able to bring in some outside assistance. What did he do? Email a plea for help to Doug Locke and his Excalibur buddies? No, they were too busy guest-starring in Dark Angel's book. Oh, uh, did he alert Di Thomas and the Weird Happenings organization? They were pretty much defunct by this point. Then what did he do? He phoned the US and faxed Deathlock to himself. What?! Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for Jay Edison while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 402 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And this time around we're looking at some issues of Excalibur, which of course I, as a British person, I feel some great affinity for. Um, they are... I wouldn't say they're Marvel UK characters done right, but um, certainly they're Marvel UK characters done on the whole more successfully than the Marvel UK characters we've talked about in a couple of the cold opens. They are basically Europe's premier superhero team, or at least they're the only one that's got an ongoing comic at this point in time. So recently, after founding member Captain Britain lost his powers and took a leave of absence after a fight with a Crimson Dawn, Excalibur went against core role-playing advice and split the party. Former X-Man Colossus and Captain Britain's elemental fiancée Megan took a vacation to Paris to visit Megan's favourite theme park until a suicide bomber caused their plane to crash at the High Evolutionary's doorstep for a plotline that went pretty much nowhere. I mean, it was a backdoor pilot for the Quicksilver series, but uh, their detour complete, they went back to Paris. I choose to believe they were headed for Parc Asterix rather than Disneyland Paris. Oh, Asterix, the main thing I remember is that Obelix had amazing pants. He did, did and does still have amazing pants. I think he's only got one pair. But when they're as good as those, I don't really know that you need to change them ever. Yeah, yeah, just as long as you keep them clean, why mess with perfection? <laughs> At the same time as this is happening, Dr. Moira McTaggart, her ward and former new mutant Wolfsbane, and former X-Man and founding Excalibur member Shadowcat, as well as the robo-alien teenager Douglock, stayed behind at Excalibur's research lab base on Muir Island. 
They're working on curing the legacy virus, the mostly mutant-targeting AIDS allegory that's been around since approximately Excalibur number 60, which was published almost five years before what we're covering today. Moira has got a special interest in doing this because she's the first human to contract it. Okay, first human, yes, we know, we know. In the context of this story, she's the first human to contract it. And to be honest, the later retcon about Moira's deal... None of this makes sense in the context of that, so I'll just sort of shrug. Yeah, I think sort of shrug is the default way, really, to deal with continuity errors in 1990s X-books. It's certainly the best way to get through it without giving yourself a migraine. Former spy Pete Wisdom and third former X-Men Nightcrawler have headed to Germany. For Nightcrawler, this was so that he could talk to his mother about why his girlfriend Amanda ghosted him. And the spoiler is that it's it's because your mother possessed your girlfriend, Kurt. Kind of awkward. And for Pete, uh, he's traveling to follow up on some leads about the dark past he abandoned. And then there's Shadowcat's best friend, the purple alien dragon Lockheed. He disappeared like a dozen issues ago. Maybe it's time to follow up on him, which we can do in Excalibur 214 for The One I Love. Written by Ben Rabb. Pencil by Pete Woods, ink by Scott Koblish, colour by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comcraft and Kiff Scholl. Kitty Pride has finally remembered that Lockheed has been missing for kind of a while, so she is down in the cavernous tunnels below Muir Island looking around. They're not technically sewers, they're just tunnels like full of, I don't know, ventilation and lots of wires, I assume. But, But still, this is kind of a trend, right, Al? Yeah, I, I think we've seen people down in tunnels stroke sewers in almost every set of issues that we've looked at so far. I, mean, I bet she's actually thinking about how these tunnels could be easily converted into some lovely sewers. Get some snakes in. That's how you get saber tooths. Oh yeah, you can like uh, order them from one of those uh, advertisement pages in an old comic. Uh, <laughs> hopefully it's after they figured out that you need to put holes in the boxes before you ship <laughs> the snakes for your DIY sewer. Yeah, absolutely. So as she examines the random scorch marks that are all over the walls here, she's surprised by Douglock, who's just sneaked up on her. So usually Douglock is just wearing like a sort of New Mutants outfit that may be part of his flesh. So maybe he's actually techno naked. It's unclear. But right now he's definitely wearing a t-shirt and that t-shirt seems to have a cartoon image of hard-boiled Henry. That's the Tweety Bird time bomb member of TechNet, who was last seen as an angry ghost in Alan Davis's Excalibur number 51. Although, weirdly, Chris Claremont's actually going to bring hard-boiled Henry back in uh, seven months. Maybe he got the idea from this t-shirt. I don't know, but that was not an Excalibur deep cut I was expecting to see. No, it's an odd one, isn't it? These sorts of massive callbacks that turn up in Ben Rabb's Excalibur. He's had this reputation, Ben Rabb, as somebody who did Excalibur very much as a job. You know, it was, we get in, we do these issues, we get our paychecks, and we go. But there are little touches here and there, like this, which kind of imply that he may have been a bigger fan than we previously knew. Although, but you know, who knows? It may have been Pete Wood's that was the, the secret Excalibur fanboy. That's true. That's true. Pete Woods is a, is a Portland local. Maybe if I run into him again, I, I can ask and see if he remembers this tiny, tiny detail from decades ago. 
Kitty's thought bubbles and her dialogue have got a lot of uh, totallys and things like that in there, which is a little weird given that recently Ellis had been writing her as much older, although she does also yell, Jeezo, which is an actual Scottish exclamation. So I have to give some kind of recognition to Ben Rav for that. You can actually tell that Kitty's been spending time with Moira. Oh, okay, so Joe Kelly did his homework on uh, Afrikaans slang for maggot, and I guess Ben Rob did his uh, homework on Scottish slang? It seems like it from this panel. I'll take it. I actually have no idea where Ben Rob is from. No, me neither, actually. Maybe it's Scotland? I don't know. Anyway, I'd be surprised by some of the other uh, dialogue balloons in this issue. I'd be surprised, but we'll see. Fair point. So, Doug Locke seeing her dedication to someone that she cares so much about, decides to follow Wolfsbane into the New Mutants Truth or Death miniseries, which you can go back to episode 396 to hear um, Miles and Jake talking about that one. So uh, bye, Douglock. See you soon, I suppose. Well, Kitty then uses the phrase, sure as sod, which, yeah, I take back my recognition for proper use of British slang. I mean, she basically just said sure as sodomy, right? Well, sod just means like, I mean, yeah, it's, it is short for that, but it's like you'd say like sod off, meaning like piss off, you know, like get lost. It, it, sure as sod is not a thing anyone would ever say. It'd be like saying, what the damn? <laughs> <laughs> this is a franchise that says stab his eyes a whole lot. Kitty does not notice the dozens of glowing yellow eyes in the shadows behind her, and she figures that the constant giggling she's hearing from all sides is just her dragon being naughty. It's not so much that Kitty seems younger exactly, as that she seems a little less um, savvy than we have seen her be in the past. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the character is handled as she gets passed between writers. I think there's a tendency with people writing Kitty Pride to write the version of Kitty Pride that they need to have in any given comic. So if you're dealing with, you know, Kate Pride in the Marauders, then suddenly she's probably about 26, 27 years old. If you're dealing with Kitty in early issues of um, Uncanny that she's in, she's 13. If you're dealing with Kitty in issues of Excalibur, she could be literally any age from about 12 to about 38 it totally depends on what the writer needs Kitty to be able to do and or who the writer needs Kitty to be stepping out with. I also kind of wonder if it has something to do with the version of Kitty that is sort of the definitive version of Kitty in the writer's head. Because we're going to see later in this arc that Kitty Pride from the Brood Saga, you know, from the 70s when she was very young, that is an era of Kitty that Ben Robb is very familiar with. And so the kitty we're seeing here is clearly supposed to be older, but, like, not that much older. She still seems a little more like that headstrong kitty that is smart but doesn't necessarily think her way through things, you know? Mm. I think that that is one of the reasons why she gets bundled off into this uh, role as a temporary S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, because she gets an email from S.H.I.E.L.D. asking her to go on a secret mission, and that is in the three-issue Kitty Pride Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. miniseries, which we'll be covering very soon. So she'll be gone for the rest of this arc. 
As for Douglock, he barely catches the last boat off of Muir Isle. In fact, he has Colossus, who has just gotten back with Megan from their theme park trip. Uh, he has Colossus literally hold the boat, quite angering the burly, exceptionally Scottish sea captain who, uh, who pilots this ship and says, Och, nay again. Just cut the engines and wait till he lets go. Bleeding superheroes. Hey, it could be worse, Captain Mustache. You could be ill-fated, legendarily terrible hovercraft salesman Angus McWhorter, who had a much darker fate in these very waters. <laughs> Indeed. So Megan and Colossus at this point are both worried that something terrible is about to happen to Douglock. Douglock won't tell them what he's doing. He's just saying, well, it's a personal errand. I've got to run and then jumps onto the boat. But they're only worried for about three seconds. Then they literally say, anyway, and go about their evening. I mean, they may be distracted. They've just been through a lot. Specifically, they have been through the Colossus one-shot, which I will grumblingly state should really be titled the Colossus and Megan one-shot because they are co-stars in it. Mm -hmm. uh, we have not covered that yet. We'd like to at some point. We couldn't fit it into this uh, episode. It's kind of a fun Murder World one-shot. Um, Brian Hitch does the art. Uh, it's, it's actually quite enjoyable. But the only real uh, call-out from it is they went to a theme park. There were some fights. Now they're here. Yeah, and it's an arcade story, which I don't think I've ever read an arcade story that wasn't a minimum of three stars. And part of that is because I just love that goofy beardo. Yeah. Uh, sidebar for something coming out right now, the uh, Murder World series of one-shots, it's kind of like a, a mini-series. Have you been reading it too? Yeah, no, I, I, I saw arcade on solicits and I was ordering those up immediately. Yeah, it, it's actually quite good. I've yeah. been, like, way more impressed than I was expecting. No, totally. I think part of that is uh, Jim Zub's involvement. Jim Zub is just a great writer. I really, really love his stuff. But so they're they're back home now. They've got all their merch from the Dudley world. Megan's got a Dudley the Dragon hat and a plushie. And she's really happy and excited to be back. She's flies back into her room she sees the giant portrait of her that Colossus painted back in Ben Rab's first issue as a wedding gift for her and Captain Britain. I should point out here that while Colossus was painting that, he was officially and canonically listening to Firestarter by the Prodigy. That is X-Men canon forever, and no one can ever tell us otherwise. <laughs> so she is, she's excited about the wedding, but she's thinking about Colossus and She's excited about the fact that she has just got such a good friend. The relationship between the two of them is not one of the more remarked on relationships in X-Men canon, but it's kind of sweet. It really is, yeah. No, that and uh, Rogue and Iceman are the two platonic male-female friendships that I really wish got, got remembered more because like those are characters that connect in ways you don't often see. They're just supportive and they get each other and they enjoy spending time together. And it's usually, to be fair, there are occasional exceptions with Colossus and Megan, but it's for the most part, not any more complicated than that. And that's just, it's just nice to see it. Just, it's just heartwarming. Yeah, absolutely. Although the other side of that coin is the complicated romantic relationships in the X-Men. And speaking of one of those, Kitty's romantic interest, Pete Wisdom, we go to see him. He has been tied up by his ex, Sari St. Hubbins, who's now working for Black Air. Presumably she's the daughter of David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap. I assume so. 
Yeah, the last time we saw them, because it has been a while since our last Excalibur episode, uh, Nightcrawler and Pete were in Germany, and then there was a big flash of light, and we saw no more of them. And apparently, that was a flash of light that ended up with Wisdom in bondage to a Spinal Tap descendant. Yeah, she's been charged with killing him uh, on behalf of Black Air. After he quit Black Air and Excalibur blew up the Dream Nails base, and that was ages ago, it was like way back in Excalibur 88. And their Black Air have been going after Excalibur members left, right, and center since then. There was a Black Air suicide bomber that blew up Colossus and Megan's airplane. They apparently did something with Nightcrawler, which we will get to. And she says that they've got plans for Shadowcat as well, which it's always nice when a villain just tells you their plan. It's great. Villain splaining. Everybody here is just super well dressed. I love Sari's outfit. She's got this midriff bearing uh, t shirt with a Dalek on it with exterminate below. And she basically has cloud strife hair. Uh, Wisdom himself, he's got this sort of neural inhibitor around his neck that cancels his powers. But the real star of the show is the red soled giant platform boots that Sari Said Hubbins is wearing with these big red stripes up the front. I would wear those and I would trip and fall and it would be worth it. She's a fashion plate. She really is. I mean, we're, this, I suppose, um, follows on from the previous episode where we talked about M plates. M plates to fashion plates. Um, who knows what kind of plates we will see next. Anyway, this <laughs> inhibitor that Pete Wisdom is wearing, uh, he says, well, you know, this is designed for powerful power initiation brain signals. It's designed for people who think they can blast their way out of these things. And if I can just do my power more subtly, then I'll actually be able to cut through all this and get out. I, I kind of dig that. that that's actually kind of cool. Mm-mm. It turns out that Sari is furious with Pete Wisdom because despite their deeply committed romantic relationship, he betrayed her and he turned her into the authorities for just a, a minor assassination attempt. Although as he remembers it, minor, minor, you loony bird! You tried to assassinate Queen Elizabeth! I should say, the dialogue in this entire interaction, this whole scene, which takes up a fair chunk of this issue, makes Chris Claremont look like Duolingo. Sari, in particular, has an accent that pinballs around the whole of the UK, plus Ireland and Australia and wherever Dick Van Dyke's from and Mary Poppins. It is absolutely shambolic. It's, this issue is on Marvel Unlimited. Anybody from any of the places I've just mentioned, uh, so that would include Dick Van Dyke, if you're listening, and we know you are, big fan, <laughs> just, just go and check out this issue because you will not believe what you're reading. I mean, if you're a longtime X-Men fan, then you at least won't be as surprised. <laughs> no, I guess. It's part of the, the whole bundle that you get when you sign up for being an Xbooks fan, I guess. <laughs> yup. So Pete uses his subtle powers to cut himself free, and there is a big fight full of all kinds of confusing accents. Also, all kinds of confusing references. Like, Sari mentions that she's the best there is at what she does, and Pete mentions that that's probably trademark infringement, and when Pete blows up Sari's gun, she says, stab your eyes! Like, she's freaking Cable or something. So Ben Robb's been reading his X-Men. I guess Sari St. Hubbins has also been reading her X-Men. Yeah, this is an intelligence operative, I suppose. She's just been reading all their files, and this kind of thing just it seeps into your brain if you read too much of it. 
<laughs> so Pete wins the fight because, you know, it's his comic. And he offers her a chance to talk it through. And he almost slaps her. He raises a hand to slap her when she spits in his face. But he doesn't. I mean, that's good. But dude, way to clear the lowest possible bar. Also, I'm not sure if he's forgotten that a moment ago he was shooting exploding energy knives at her head. You know, it's a superhero comic. We just we just kind of have to go with that distinction. Mm-hmm. So he strides off after he's lit a match on her forehead. So, you know, that mercy that he's showing a moment ago only takes him so far. That brings us to Excalibur number 115, Missionaries. Written again by Ben Ra, with pencils by Mel Ruby. Hey, I like Mel Ruby. Inks by Scott Koblish, colors by Kevin Tinsley, and letters by Richard Starkings in Comicraft and Kiff Scholl. So Mel Ruby, uh, as I cannot get over, is that artist that drew Bishop and Deathbird, like, way too sexy back in space. But he is a genuinely great artist. He has this very detailed style. His characters look a little different than they sometimes do in a more house style. Uh, like, his Banshee is shockingly buff and, and square-jawed, and also has the, one of the coolest renditions of his cape I've seen. You know, Banshee has that kind of underarm stripey cape thing, but Mel Ruby draws it with these very realistic cloth folds, which combined with his stripes is just really visually compelling. I, I don't know. I, I enjoy it. It is really great to see an artist come at a character like Banshee from something other than a stock image angle. You know, a lot of people have got the same approach to drawing Banshee and you know, he'll always have this kind of semi-quiff and massive sideburns and tiny corncob pipe but i mean admittedly this slash page does have him doing the the jim lee wolverine leap both fists one knee thing but the cape is so well done and it actually gives banshee a distinctive look it's it's excellent frankly yeah uh, I also kind of enjoy Doug Locke here. Uh, Doug Locke is also more detailed than we often see him, but he's got this like 90s boy band floppy techno hair, which which should look stupid, but actually looks great and gives Doug Locke a lot more visual character. Yeah, it looks like he's tried to call a tips helpline for a computer game and he's actually got a frosted tips helpline instead. <laughs> well done. Well done. Thank you. Uh, So yes, Banshee, as you may know, is not typically a character in Excalibur, but in Generation X, we did see him visit Moira recently. That was in Generation X number 32. And we find here that apparently as he was flying back to the U.S. from Scotland, he got a call partway and just kind of turned around in the air, I assume. Um, And this call was not terribly useful. It was just Wolfsbane repeating over and over in the call slash voicemail. Moira's killing herself. Rain Sinclair, a little more detail in your voicemail would probably be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this is basically the the full message equivalent of when your boss says, uh, uh, have you got a moment just to, just a quick word. And it turns out that they want to talk to you about like organizing a, a team night out to a pub quiz or something like that. Don't bury the lead, people. You're fomenting panic. Anyway... Point being, uh, on the flight back, when Banshee's, like, hurrying back to Mirror Island to see what horrible things are going on, he uh, annoys Captain Mustache again with his screaming powers and Ariel Wake, who says, once again, "'Tis another one of them bullied superheroes." 
he kind of reminds me of the my cabbages guy from avatar the last airbender i just want captain mustache to show up every single issue and have his day slightly ruined by superheroes and then he says bleeding superheroes and turns to the camera and points and winks <laughs> exactly so Banshee lands and reconnects with Colossus, now a member of Excalibur. Uh, he fills Colossus in a recent Generation X story bits. Colossus tells him what he's been up to. I dig that this book remembers that Banshee and Colossus actually have quite a bit of history as teammates and of friends. They were on the 70s X-Men together for a really long time. Yeah, Colossus probably would actually have even opened his conversation with Banshee saying, hey, do you know who I just fought? Remember that guy that put us all in big pinballs? And, and bounced us around a bit. Yeah, that guy. It was it was weird. Um, yeah, so I, the thing I really appreciate about him in this panel, actually, is that he decides to armor up purely to shake Banshee's hand and minorly prank his friend. It's, it's genuinely fun. Like, I know we're really mixed on Ben Robb's writing, but when he minds continuity, when he minds past character relationships like this, it does tend to work really well and be quite enjoyable. It almost feels like we would have been better off with him writing Generation X, in a way. You know, th there's there's an alternate timeline where that happened, and I think it might have worked out a little better, yeah. I would love to read Larry Hama's Excalibur. Oh, jeez, yes, yes, please. Uh, although, Larry Hama does write Kitty Pride Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so that's kind of like that, mm. kind of. That's his audition piece, I guess. <laughs> yep. So, Wolfsbane and Douglock explain, you know, better this time to Banshee what's up. Apparently, Moira McTaggart has placed herself into an indefinite quarantine. Well, she's about to. She's doing final preparation. Yeah, she's sitting around with colorful keypads, giant CRTs. Uh, cathode ray tubes, not uh, this present day. Jeez. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's like this little techno uh, bomb shelter, almost. And as is appropriate in any comic book, this technology is very colorful and very large and very overwhelming. It's serial experiments laying all up in here. Yeah, it's awesome. It's very much that kind of aesthetic that we're missing now where, you know, Apple Macs used to have clear blue or green or pink or purple plastic as part of their casing and they should bring that stuff back right? everything should look like ziggy from the original quantum leap i completely agree as a mac technician i professionally agree <laughs> well moira's she's pretty happy at this point in time i mean she is dying of legacy virus but she's had this day with banshee and generation x where they had this picnic and she's actually kind of seems to be at peace until the point where Banshee actually walks into the lab, at which point suddenly she's just like, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Kind of scurrying to get her clean suit helmet back on so as not to infect him. And she's raging at him. So Banshee's like, whoa, Moira, what's, what's going on? Why the urgency? And apparently that's because Moira has realized what the victims so far of the legacy virus have had in common. She mentions Mastermind, Infectia, Magic, Revanche, Multiple Man, Pyro, Maverick, Chris Bradley, herself. She forgets a couple externals, but honestly, who cares about them? And she's like, okay, what do these people have in common? And the correct answer is nothing. They have nothing in common. And that means that the virus is random. And that makes sense because the guy who made it, Strife, is the Chaos Bringer. Right, so, okay, but here's the thing, only one human 
asterisk, we know, we know, has ever contracted it, but a bunch of mutants have, and mutants are a minority. I mean, okay, I guess it's it's airborne, so, you know, it's going to affect more people who tend to hang out together, but... I don't know, this whole plot line, like we mentioned earlier that the legacy virus has been a going concern for about five years at this point in comics, five years of publication time. And it's just gone all over the place in terms of what causes it, what the potential cure might be, how it works even. Like if you look at the Marvel database, there's legacy A and legacy B, and it's almost as complicated as, as adamantium. It, it kind of reminds me of the flailing we see with the nature of the prize in the Upstarts game earlier in the 90s. It's like nobody ever really had an idea of where it was going, so it just sort of stabs out in kind of random directions every time it appears. And that's not inherently a bad thing, but when it goes on for this long, you really start to feel it, you know? Yeah, it's a common complaint, I think, really, about this year of the X-Books is that they come up with great ideas and then no stories to go with the ideas, you know, like, what if we did this? What if we had Onslaught? And like, okay, well, what's Onslaught? I don't know. He's a guy who's going to be big and he's going to hand their X-Men the, their asses a few times. Mm-hmm. But no real kind of plan for what the end of that road is. Yeah, and I don't want to poo-poo this era, like, too much. Like, again, there is so much good stuff here, and I think that's part of why it's occasionally frustrating, is because, Al, like you were just saying, there are all these cool ideas, and they don't necessarily get a chance to to get developed in the way that I would love to see. And I know we're about to enter the Siegel-Kelly era of X-Men, so we're about to see a lot of that. Yeah, but Moira has picked up on this point, and Banshee, you know, he acknowledges that she's right. It's an important thing that she's discovered, and he actually even thinks to himself, Tell her you're worried sick, Cassidy. Tell her she's as stubborn as old Ahab himself, chasing a white whale that could be the death of her. Or better yet, don't tell her anything. Support her decision. Encourage her to do what she must. And pray that her daughter ever forgives you. That daughter is, of course, Rain Sinclair. At this point in time, Douglock is comforting her out in the corridor. He's doing all right with it. Basically, he kind of says that he loves her, sort of. In part, it's because the phalanx instinctively tries to form a collective. The way he phrases it is more romantic than I'm making it sound. But he says he's happy to wait until she's ready to decide if she wants that. And he just kisses her on the forehead and leaves it there. It's it's actually quite endearing and heartwarming. Yeah. We mentioned Mel Ruby's art earlier on. I just want to stress that his work on Doug in this issue is absolutely terrific. The way he depicts Doug's face with these kind of mismatched eyes, like one regular human-shaped eye, one massive kind of circular lens. There's all this kind of greebling all over him, which for anyone who doesn't know what greebling is, it's like weird kibble stuck onto plastic stuff to make it look more interesting um go and google it google image search it in fact it's actually genuinely fascinating as a style he's got all these Mm -hmm. cables hanging out of him he looks more like warlock than he has for a while and that of course makes sense in context later where we find out that he is more like warlock than he is putting himself across as being just now but on the whole it comes across as just a an order more unsettling and more alien version of Douglock than we see from some other artists. And I think that's important with Douglock, because if you just draw him like a normal teenager, except yellow, then you really miss an opportunity. When you see him drawn like this, as clearly not human, clearly just like an alien crammed into a mostly human shape, 
than the ways in which his personality has become more and more human, in which he's learned to connect to people on a human level, that means more. That kind of contrast, that really emphasizes all of the efforts he made, he's made and all of the progress that he's made. And I love to see that. Mm, it's absolutely fantastic. Meanwhile, whilst all this is going on, Pete Wisdom is trying to use Cerebro to find Nightcrawler. This is Excalibur's version of Cerebro. And so, yeah, Nightcrawler, remember when he was on the team? Yeah, yeah. We haven't seen him since number 112 when he got knocked out at the same time Pete did. Yeah, so Pete Wisdom is not having a great deal of success working the machine. And he gets so frustrated by it that he actually just gets up, walks away, and shoots it with one of his hot knives as he's walking off, just as it discovers a signal in Italy. I mean, I have a little sympathy here. I definitely have an NES controller with bite marks on it from trying and failing over and over to beat Ninja Gaiden as a child. Yes. I have to say, I don't have that in on the controllers, but some of the walls have the controller shapes on them. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. It's probably a good thing this was before wireless controllers, because you only had so much range in which you could do damage. <laughs> exactly. That was the great uh, innovation of the Wii is that it really added to the range. Oh, so many, so many destroyed flat screen televisions. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, Megan is delighted elsewhere in the compound. She got a letter from Brian Braddock. Apparently, Brian found a way to get his Captain Britain powers back, and he is coming home to actually marry her after them having been engaged for ages. And I love the way Mel Ruby draws her as well. She is just overjoyed. She's floating in the air, kicking her feet out in delight. She has this ridiculously long hair streaming chaotically behind her. She really does just seem like this, this elfin emotional elemental, which is so much of who Megan often is. And speaking of contrasts, Colossus gently points out, hey, there's really not time for this because Moira is about to seal herself in and we all need to be there for her. And to Megan's credit, she immediately feels bad for being insensitive, for focusing so much on her own happiness when something so rough is about to happen to people that she cares about. And I think this brings up kind of a, a larger point. Megan's hard to get right. It's a very fine line between her as this joyful free spirit that we're seeing here and her being instead seen as childishly naive. Some writers really write her that way, and, and that bugs me because Megan's not unintelligent. She just has grown up away from most of humanity, and she's has sort of like one foot in, in the fairy realm, essentially. And I think Ben Robb, again, we, we have our criticisms of his writing, but I think he overall tends to land on the right side of this with Megan. I think so too. I mean, Megan is one of these characters who is often overlooked in the wider context of the X world. I mean, she is key to Excalibur, but she's not really key to the X books generally. But when you go back to Excalibur right from day one, people talk about Nightcrawler as being the heart of the team, and I don't really think he is. I think Megan is really the heart of Excalibur. Nightcrawler, to be honest, I think is kind of the heart of the X-Men, and that's one of the reasons why I think the X-Men are, are generally weaker when Nightcrawler doesn't feature in, in some way or another. But in terms of Excalibur, Megan is the one who brings a bit of humanity to it and a bit of the, the lighter side of it. Because Excalibur has, since the beginning, been a lighter X-book. It is a sillier X-book. It's a more fun X-book. It's an X-book that actually knows how to laugh at things. 
And Megan is symbolic of that, really. And to get a, a version of Megan who is not a, a, a small child in a grown-up's body and who's not um, at the the mercy of the whims of how people are feeling about her or whatever is so good to see. And I really love the version of Megan that we get in these issues. I think it's absolutely terrific. Yes, very much so. I, she's she's a highlight, I think, of of this era of Excalibur. The art remains also a highlight in this particular issue. There's this wonderful page of these three vertical panels. We see Moira in her sort of spacesuit, clean suit thing in the foreground, staring at these holographic molecular models. And then we see her progressively turning to look behind her as Wolfsbane, her her foster daughter, walks in behind her, just just calling out for her for her mummy. This issue also, come to think of it, uh, does a good job of showing Rain both as an intelligent adult, but also as a character with more childlike uh, traits, like just in the sense that she's Moira's daughter. And of course, that's going to come out at a time like this when she's about to lose her mother in some ways. Yeah, it's it's really really well handled. I have to give Rab props for this because playing these two characters relationship at this key moment in this way it really heightens the the sadness of the moment that it is something major that moira is doing here it's not just you know the typical superheroic kind of oh this is a deeply symbolic moment for me it's a mother and a daughter being separated yeah and one by one, Moira gets her goodbyes with everybody else, uh, like it's the scene on Earth before the last mission of, of Mass Effect 3, and I mean that in the best way. Um, Wisdom mentions that he snuck some non-shitty coffee into the freezer for Moira. Uh, Moira tells Megan that Captain Britain had better give her a big grant for her next project when she gets out. Moira and Douglock connect over what a pleasure it's been to work together. Moira gives Colossus a data disc, probably a jazz drive, to give to Xavier when he can with some of her research on it. And she thanks Banshee for not trying to stop her and promises him that she'll come back alive. And we're going through this very, very quickly, but everything does have room to breathe. Like, this is kind of a pretty great issue of Excalibur, which I was not expecting. Yeah, it it was significantly better than I thought it was going to be. I would like it to be the case, though, that just to really put a kind of line of bathos under all this, if Colossus got back to Professor X and it turned out she'd accidentally given him her bootleg of Space Quest 2. (laughs) <laughs> but it works out uh xavier loves space quest he does he's a huge space quest fan not so hot on police quest he, he kind of thinks that the deaths in that are arbitrary and without real explanation that's a fair point fair point but at this point wolfsbane suddenly goes into her hybrid wolf form and just dives through the about to permanently or semi-permanently until the experiment's done close door and she's stuck in there she can't get out. She's stuck in there with someone with the legacy virus, and Doug Locke falls to his knees, and that is the sad end to this sad issue. So it's time for a change of pace as we go to Excalibur number 116, Death in Venice, written by Ben Robb, penciled by Mel Ruby, inked by Rob Hunter, colored by Kevin Tinsley, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Kiff Scholl. So Death in Venice is kind of an interesting name for it because it's a famous novella by Thomas Mann in which a writer visits Venice and uh, becomes basically obsessed with this young tourist that he sees. And it's following that great tradition of Marvel Comics, which is take a famous name for a thing and then just use it for something which is completely unrelated and really bears no resemblance to it whatsoever. Death in Venice, the novella, Death in Venice, the issue of Excalibur, 
the thing that they have in common is three words, and those words are death in Venice. Probably for the best. The uh, original novella, I'm not sure that I would trust Ben Rob's Excalibur to uh, handle that in a subtle, sensitive way. <laughs> so we start off with catching up with Pete Wisdom. He's kind of feeling a bit rubbish and a bit sorry for himself, and he's smoking and drinking and throwing litter out the window. And it's only when the litter bounces back through the window and smacks him on the head that he realizes that, oh, Excalibur have come to visit. And Megan floats through to say, what are you doing? Come on, come on, stop throwing this around, you miserable git. Get up. I think the the art in this section is actually beautiful. Like it's got this gorgeous kind of Tom Rainey feel to it, um, which again, more than can be said for Rab's continuing merciless mistreatment of the word sod, which once again gets kicked around the houses here. The reason Megan's come is because that controller, that wisdom bit before throwing it against the wall, I mean, that Cerebro helmet, uh, has in fact found Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler is in Venice, Italy. And so where exactly is Nightcrawler, aside from in Venice, Italy? Well, it turns out he is in the shadows in some kind of weirdo techno-based thing. And we get a really cool full-page spread on the first page of this issue, which has got a close-up of Nightcrawler's face, with it kind of disappearing into the black background and the transparent outline of his hand stretched out in front of him. It is an awesome image. Yeah, everybody forgets that Nightcrawler's one of Nightcrawler's powers, although it goes back and forth uh, how canonical it is, is to literally disappear, to become invisible in shadows. Yeah, it doesn't do him an awful lot of good, though, because he gets confronted and zapped and slimed by a trio of purple bug aliens. Turns out that Black Air had captured Nightcrawler at the same time as they captured uh, Pete Wisdom, and they turned Nightcrawler over to these guys, and they really, really wanted him. It turns out that they have a whole grudge against Kurt and it's continuity time Nightcrawler doesn't know what's going on and he says I don't understand why you hate me so I don't even know you of course you don't you left us for dead I do really like this trope, sort of the characters that get caught in the crossfire, that just get caught in the wake, almost, of larger plot lines that the heroes and villains are engaging in. I'm reminded of the support group of people who had been severely injured in attacks by Magneto uh, in Cullen Bunn and Gabriel Hernandez-Waltz's Magneto series. There was also a Doctor Who episode that uh, had a similar premise. Anyway, it's a fun trope, but this time, it's with bug people. It turns out that their story is a a between-issues retcon from between issues 166 and 167 of Uncanny. This is when the X-Men were coming back to Earth from the Brood saga. So we get to see the Paul Smith era of X-Men, represented by Mel Ruby. It's pretty cool. It It is. Uh, and also Ben Robb channeling Chris Claremont. Like at one point, Carol Danvers, who of course was with the X-Men at this point as binary, calls Colossus P.D. Pureheart. I haven't seen Colossus called P.D. Pureheart in a long time. You should bring that back. It should be his new code name. Like, ditch the Colossus thing. Just call yourself yeah. Peter Pureheart from now on. That's his new mutant name on Krakoa. <laughs> so they were on their way home from space, and they saw a Sidri ship adrift in space. The Sidri, you may or may not remember, basically they were this kind of manta ray-shaped, boomerang-shaped aliens who showed up on Earth uh, pursuing Corsair for the Shi'ar back in Uncanny 154. Um, and they are in trouble they're they're adrift and they're they're basically gonna die if the x-men just leave them so there's a bit of a debate going on about what to do because xavier at this point has got effectively a bug bomb 
inside him and they don't have an awful lot of time. So there's a bit of a standoff on the bridge of the Starjammer. And it's Corsair, the captain of the ship, who ultimately decides what to do. Steady as she goes, Mamzelle Epsibah. And Shadowcat, in her amazing purple space aerobics outfit that she wore far too briefly in this era, she comes off as much more like herself under Rob's writing, which makes sense because he kind of writes her like a teenager. Are you kidding me? You're just going to let them die? No, Kurt, I won't shush. Not when some of you guys tell me I can trust is willing to be a part of the murder. Corsair, for his part, has no patience and calls her a snot-nosed earther punk. Christopher Summers is a jerk. <laughs> you know, this outfit is even better than that one jacket she wore when she said that Professor Xavier was a jerk, and that takes some doing. So Kurt and Kitty teleport down to the sick bay and send what they think is a revitalization serum across space into the living Sidru ship to heal it and heal its inhabitants up. Turns out that actually Kitty's Shi'ar was not as uh, good as she thought it was, and it wasn't actually revitalization serum. It was a mutation agent, and it mutated these Sidri into big, kind of muscular, humanoid versions of themselves, and that got them kicked out of their intensely collectivist species. Okay, to be fair, Kurt, and by extension, Kitty, who's not here right now, you really could have thought this whole idea through a little better. I can understand why they're upset. Yeah, it's not really explained how the Sidri have any idea at all that Kirk was involved in this in any way, though. Yeah, that's true. Unless they had really, really good monitoring equipment on their broken ship. I didn't think about that part. Anyway, at this point in time, Excalibur takes the Midnight Runner into the canals of Venice. Venice is the most Italian place you've ever seen in comics. To quote a gondolier, Oh, sola mio! Eh? Mamma mia! This guy's going to be voiced by Chris Pratt in the movie. He's actually even wearing a red cap. Oh, man. Uh, Later on, uh, when there's another uh, disturbance, all of the Italian folks on the canals yell out in literal unison, like a speech bubble with multiple little pointy bits, Madonna Mia! Like they rehearsed. Yeah, they're very much, I'm Italian background person. I send the X into space. I know paying the taxes, all that kind of thing. (laughs) Yep. So the Sidri ship is underwater, and it is also pretty muscular. It seems to have also been mutated by this thing. The Midnight Runner gets kind of fried up, and it's up to Colossus to punch his way out and distract the Sidri while Wisdom carries the others out. There is a great panel of Pete Wisdom holding his breath underwater with his cheeks puffed out, and then sticking a thumbs up through the surface into the tiny air pocket to signal to Colossus. I don't really think of Mel Ruby as, like, a humorous artist, but but that's a really funny panel. <laughs> it's good. It's a good moment. And there's a big fight, of course, because, you know, X-Men. And Colossus swims down to confront the Sidri. And the Sidri, it turns out, can armor up just like Colossus. Well, I mean, similarly to Colossus anyway. Until they eventually merge into one really big Sidri. They do a whole kind of Bill and Ted's bogus journey thing and just combine into one giant version of themselves so it's bad news for our heroes as they head into Excalibur issue 117 Amendments it's written by Ben Rabb penciled by Mel Ruby inked by Rob Hunter it's colored by Kevin Tinsley and it's lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Kiff Shaw well we'll get back to Colossus and Station shortly in the meantime 
Pete Wisdom feels pretty bad about this whole thing as he swims the unconscious Megan and Douglock to the surface. I mean, he was the one who lost Nightcrawler, but specifically he lost Nightcrawler because of his own past mistakes working for Black Air. So he's trying to make up for it. He revives Megan with mouth-to-mouth, and then she uses her elemental powers to revive Douglock, explaining, The electrofire has left his body, but I think I can tease it back inside. I really like Megan's relationship with the elements. I, I like the way Rob interprets it. She doesn't really have her metamorph powers in this era. Al, you alluded to that earlier, that she's no longer changing form based on the expectations of others but she does have all this elemental stuff i do have to wonder is the lack of metamorphosing is that because she's become more confident in her identity or do you think the writers just kind of gradually forgot i'd like to think it's the former and to be honest i think spending time away from brian has been a big help for her like she is feeling more as an independent woman she is feeling much less as a, a kind of accessory to captain britain and she is much less dependent on what other people, particularly Brian, think of her. And she's decided, I look like this. I look like you know the, the beautiful, long-flowing hair person version of me that I felt like when I was happy. And that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that interpretation. And I, I completely agree. Like, whatever was intended, like, I, I, I choose to assume this was 100% deliberate because it works so freaking well. Uh, Down below, Colossus is joined by Nightcrawler in a very shredded outfit and his three swords, hand, hand, tail. Uh, And Kurt suggests that they take the aliens down old school X-Men style. Once again, Ben Robb really focuses on the fact that Nightcrawler and Colossus and Kitty are former X-Men. Just like here, he's focusing this story on a side bit from a classic X-Men story. Like, Ben Robb is clearly a fan of 70s X-Men. I guess also early 90s Excalibur based on the hard-boiled Henry thing. But that's really coming through. Uh, So in the fight, Kurt throws Colossus a sword and he joins in, which is a nice little callback to their fencing training session back in Robb's Excalibur number 108. And they teach the Sidri about the power of friendship and the power of large bladed weapons and colossus actually says in one point oh how do we split these combined sidri apart we could fight them much more easily if they were split apart and then literally in the next panel it happens and they have no idea how it's happened the art is completely baffling on this point it doesn't really matter because eventually they start to recombine anyway yeah, yeah, we, we've been talking a lot of great stuff about Mel Ruby's art. It is wonderful, but occasionally uh, it's a little hard to to follow. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to focus on that for too long because Megan parts the seas so the other members of Excalibur can get down to the Sidri ship, and they join the fight too. Until the Sidri absorb Douglock, or parts of him anyway, trying to gain the collective nature of the phalanx from his alien body to incorporate it back into themselves to sort of integrate themselves back into the sidri hive mind which sounds complicated and is complicated but kind of makes sense yeah and the x-men know that the sidri's big uh, weakness is heat and so megan amplifies one of wisdom's hot knives they use it to fry the sidri they split the sidri apart they save Douglock. And at that point, it turns out the fight is largely over because the Sidri are effectively cured because of what they've been able to take from Douglock to um, remedy the mutation that had been put into them by Kitty and Kurt. 
Yeah, so now they're just normal Sidri again, and they fly home to rejoin their apparently very bigoted families, who I guess won't be bigoted because now they look like everybody else again. I'm not so sure about Sidri culture, but it's it's a happy ending, including for Douglock, because even though he's been severely injured, apparently the part of him that's been taken away was the part of him that tied him to the Phalanx Collective, that made it hard for him to be an individual rather than continually feeling a pull back toward the rest of the Phalanx. So now, for the first time, he's an individual too. Now, we'll find out, as we've alluded to many times, Douglock is really Warlock with his memories messed up. So in that regard, it doesn't make a ton of sense, because Warlock is a technarch, not a member of the Phalanx, as much as they're related. Again, like with the Moira thing, I kind of vote we just don't worry about it, you know? Yeah, I think so. Like, we can say maybe he's been carrying around some element of the phalanx with him since the phalanx covenant or something like that. You know, there there are many ways to wave a hand and say a wizard did it. But for the purposes of this story, what we need to know is the Sidri are fine. The Sidri say we're not going to kill you anymore and the Sidri leave. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, Wolfsbane is still in the containment pod with Moira. Uh, Ruby's Wolfsbane, so Ruby Dry's character is kind of sexy, we've mentioned that. That's a little weird for Wolfsbane. Um, that might make more sense way later, like in 2003 when she was hooking up with a young student and stuff. Whatever, it's it's fine, it's a short little bit. What's important is that Moira is just anguished. I mean, the person she cares most about in the world, her adopted daughter, could die of the virus because of her proximity to her mother. Like, what a nightmare that is. But Wolfsbane has no regrets at all. Nonsense. If your life is worth sacrificing to win the war against this bloody plague, so's mine. And there we go. Excalibur inches toward its finale. The legacy virus inches toward a cure. And the Sidri inch back out into space. Overall, actually a pretty decent set of issues in this era. Yeah, it's not too bad. It ties up a lot of plot threads that have been ongoing for a few issues by this point. It reunites the team. It sets them into a place where they can pick up and and carry it forward to new stories that aren't tied to Black Air and things like that. It's a decent reset point. Speaking of things that are significantly better than decent, our listeners have questions. J.W. McCormick emailed us to ask, I organize all my vinyl records by Marvel Comics characters. A picture of Storm, Demarcates the Punk, Howard the Duck, New Wave, Mystique, Bowie Glam, Dazzler, Disco, Longshot Rockabilly, Hulk Indy, because he is the lonely man, Dracula Goth, Wolverine in Brood Mode is Metal, Doctor Doom is Jazz, because he's a percussion instrument, and so on. Beast is Krautrock and Nightcrawler Classical, and maybe it seems like those should be reversed, but I think Hank puts on the likes of Noi and Can in the Lab. What are some musical genres you could connect an axe or Marvel character to? What about emo, French yaya music, blues, hip-hop, reggae, etc.? First, I'd, I'd like to commend uh, this person for going to French yaya music before they think of genres like blues, hip-hop, and reggae. You know, the, the, the smaller, more minor ones. But, um, okay, so Pete Wisdom, obviously, is Britpop. Gambit is Zydeco. Maggot. Eenie and Meenie are collectively the blues. I see what you did there. Mm. Archangel is emo. He is the most emo person in a very emo group of people. Northstar and Aurora are ska because they're just black and white two-tone. Mr. Sinister obviously is hip-hop because he does so much sampling and remixing. And Dupe is like the weird stuff. He's like Zappa and Beefheart and JG Thorwell. I mean, I gotta throw in some metal. Uh, 
not X, but Thor's totally Viking death metal incarnate magic, Ilyana Rasputin, symphonic black metal. And Adam X, I am sad to say, is the very incarnation of new metal. But you know what? You got to be who you are. <laughs> Ken has emailed us to ask, over the course of Marvel history, have more individual characters held the title X-Man or Avenger? Use whichever definition of the terms you prefer. Oh, Ken. Oh, Ken, what have you done? I um, I don't want to talk about how much time I spent on this. Uh, I initially got my information from the Ever Useful Marvel database and then had a heck of a time learning different Excel functions to format and organize that information. Um, so the way I did this, I tried to be as inclusive as possible since it's more fun that way. But I didn't want to include characters who were just related to the teams, but never actually on the team. So like Feral, never in the X-Men in any way, shape, or form. As far as the X-Men, so this list is going to include temporary members. It's going to include young mutants in active training to be X-Men. And it's going to include super faculty at the school. This does include quite a few people since so many joined in the X-Men Disassembled era and were technically X-Men during Ten of Swords and stuff like that. As for the Avengers, uh, this will include the various types of Avengers teams, even like the Great Lakes Avengers, even Kate Bishop's West Coast Avengers. It's also going to include honorary members that worked with the teams and were technically Avengers. So, all of that said, the grand total I ended up with, and I'm sure these numbers would be different if someone else did this, but I ended up with 195 X-Men and 229 Avengers which was kind of closer than I thought it would be. I was expecting way more Avengers, but it's true. The X-Men do have a habit of promoting different characters to X-Men for like four seconds at a time. So there you have it. The official, unofficial counts. I hope you enjoy them because, oh boy, I'm a little traumatized by Excel right now. Wouldn't it have been better if there had been 198 X-Men? Just thematically. It totally would have. You know, I bet I can tweak the numbers. I bet I can find those extra three. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandscamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Kitty Pride gets a new costume once again. As she becomes an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) 